Let me ask you this. Can you think back to your childhood? Think back to your childhood. I know for some of you, you've got to go really far back. I'm looking at my father-in-law. You've got to go really far back to think about childhood. Think about, think about the games that you played during your childhood. Go all the way back then. Okay, uh, we had my, my neighbor, him and I, we, we loved baseball growing up, and we grew up in, when Ken Griffey Jr. was in his prime. And so every day, we would go out in his front yard, and he had a, a fence on the other side of his yard, and we would play home run derby, and we would mimic Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing, trying to be as sweet and smooth as Ken Griffey Jr. We did that for hours upon hours. It was great. But then on my street, we lived on this dead-end street, and if all the kids were home, there was about 10 of us kids that were all like within a couple of years of each other. And if everybody was home and outside playing, we would play this huge game of cops and robbers. And I don't know, I don't know if you ever played this when you were growing up, but, but we did it all the time where we would pick two of the kids to be robbers and they'd be the bad guy. They'd get like a 60 second head start and they'd go run. And then the rest of us would get on our bikes and we had these little cap guns, you know, the little cap guns that make a little noise when you... When you pull the trigger, and we would ride around on our bikes, and if you saw one of the robbers, you would drop your bike, and you would give chase, and you chase them through all the, all the neighbor's yards. The goal is if you went into Mr. Johnson's backyard, you didn't want to get caught, because he'd call your mom, and you'd be in trouble if you got caught in his backyard, but we trampled over the entire neighborhood, everybody's yards, their gardens, all sorts of things, playing cops and robbers. Here's the thing. The robbers, they always lost. The point of the game was for the robbers to lose. That's why there was two of them and, and eight of the good guys. Uh, the goal for the robber was to see how long you could last before you got caught. You know, I think about that childhood game, and I don't know what you play. That's how we played. I think about childhood, even at that young age, like, like me and my friends, like we understood that in the world, we have good guys and we have bad guys. That's kind of how the world operates. And we understood at the young age, you've got the good guys that are the cops and the bad guys that are robbers, and the good guys are supposed to win. And if the bad guys wins, that, if the bad guy wins, that's an injustice. And you need to do something about it because the good guys are supposed to win, right? I mean, that's how life works. This is the reality of, of, of how life is. In fact, you think about every Disney movie. Every Disney movie is set up on this basic principle that there's a good guy and there's a bad guy, right? Like, like, like think, about, think about, let's think about the Lion King. You got Simba, okay? Simba's the good guy. Now, he's not perfect. He's got some problems, so you can kind of relate to him. But Simba is the good guy. And then in the Disney movie, you also have the bad guy. In the Lion King, it's Scar. Scar is, is dark. He's evil. There's no confusion about the, who the good guy and the bad guy is. You know who the good guy is. You know who the bad guy is. And what happens in every Disney movie? The good guy wins. And they live happily ever after. Right? Because isn't that how our world works? Good guys win. Bad guys lose. In fact, I think you can take this idea, and maybe because we learned it from Disney, or maybe it's just part of our nature. This is how we view the world. This is how oftentimes we view religion and how we view God. Where the people that are good, God loves those people. God blesses those people. God allows them to be fruitful in life. And the people that are bad, oh, those are the people that have to suffer. Those are the people that God judges. And it's interesting because, because even though we say we believe in grace, we have this idea that sometimes these ideas kind of get intermingled into our religion and into our faith. 
God likes the good people, the good guys, and he doesn't the bad guys. That's how we view the world around us. Listen, we're in this sermon series that we're calling The Story, where we're trying to capture the, the, the meta-narrative of the Bible. We're not talking about the meta-universe. We're trying to talk about the meta-narrative of the Bible. That, that every story, every event, every character, every command of the Bible is really a part of a bigger story, a story that's not about you and me, simply about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So we've been in this series for a couple, couple weeks now. Last week, we saw the story of Abraham. If you remember the story of Abraham, God made this beautiful promise to Abraham. He said, Abram, listen, you don't have any kids. You don't have anything for yourself, but I'm going to make a promise to you. And the promise was, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to give you kids, and you're going to become a great nation. And not only that, the promise also said, and out of you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And we saw last week that despite Abraham's unfaithfulness, God is a faithful promise keeper and kept his promise to Abraham. Well, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you a fast forward summary of the rest of the book of of Genesis because we're going to be in the book of Exodus today. And so the rest of Genesis, uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they give birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac gets married and and gives birth to a son by the name of of Jacob. And Jacob, God ends up changing his name to Israel. Okay, now, now Jacob, he has 12 sons, and we call those sons the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where some of the, the background of Scripture comes from. And one of Jacob's sons, his name is Joseph. Jacob loved more than all the other sons. Listen, parents, that's a bad thing for you. Like, secretly, you can actually do that, but it, like, don't, do not let that be known, right? And so, and so uh, Jacob loves Joseph more than all the other brothers, and the brothers become jealous of him. And so they, they, they caused Joseph to be sold into slavery in Egypt. And so there's, there's Joseph. He's gone in slavery. He's got a horrible life in front of him. But God's hand is on him. God's favor is on Joseph. And so Joseph ends up uh, interpreting a dream for the Pharaoh and, and gets to the point where there's a famine in the land. And, and, the, and the Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command of all Egypt. He's the guy that's going to lead them through the famine. He is powerful, has authority. And it just so happens in the providence of God that God uses Joseph to save his family. His family, back in their land, they're, they're struggling through the famine. And because Joseph is in charge of Egypt and he prepared them for that, he's able to save his family, to bring his family into Egypt and put them into a place of, uh, of prominence. And that's our story of Joseph. Now what happens is Joseph dies. But his family continues uh, to remain in Egypt, and his family just multiplies, and they have more and more and more people. And that happens in the end of, of Genesis. And then you get to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, uh, there is an evil, dark-hearted Pharaoh who did not know Jacob and Joseph. He did not know Joseph and the things that, that God had done through Joseph. And so he enslaves all of Joseph's ancestors, the Israelite people. He enslaves them and treats them horribly. In fact, this Pharaoh is so sadistic that he orders all of the baby boys that are born into this, this nation to be murdered. Like, he's, he's a pretty sadistic guy. He's not the kind of guy that we'd want to hang out with. But one of those baby boys, a, guy, a boy by the name of Moses, God, through his providence, saves. And this boy is raised by, uh, by Pharaoh's daughter, which is actually an amazing story. Again, if you have not read that story, Exodus chapter 2, read about the background of Moses. It, it, it's amazing. Well, Moses grows up. He's 40 years old. 
And he decides to take justice into his own hands. And he kills an Egyptian slave master. You think, yeah, take justice. He's an avenger. Well, when that became public, he has to flee into the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. And at 80 years old, he's 80 years old, God calls Moses to go back to Egypt. And God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Pharaoh. And I want you to tell Pharaoh, your ancestors, your people, the nation of Israel, I want you to tell Pharaoh to let them go. To let them leave the land of Egypt and go return to their own land. And you're going to be the one that's going to talk to the Pharaoh and convince the Pharaoh to do this. And Moses is like, I can't do that. I I don't speak very well. I stutter. And God says, listen, no excuses. No excuses. This is what I'm calling you to do. And so that's what Moses does. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh has a hard heart. And what Pharaoh does, actually, is begins to mistreat the people even more. He begins to, to beat them even more. And so in the book of Exodus, you see this little bit of a dance between Pharaoh and Moses uh, from Exodus chapter 7 to, to 12 or so, where, 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 where Moses says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And God sends these different plagues. These are the, the plagues that you may be familiar with. There were nine different plagues that happened. The first one was uh, God turned the blood of the Nile River, uh, God turned the Nile River water into blood, killing all the fish, trying to get Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh says, nope, you're not going to go. And then, uh, and then the, second, the second one is uh, God causes frogs to happen everywhere, and they die, and they stink, and it creates a mess. Pharaoh says, nope, you're not going to go. Uh, then God sends gnats to p- pester all the people. And God says, nope, you're not going to go. No, Moses, oh, man, I'm getting all my names mixed up. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And then, and then God sends flies. And then God causes the death of the livestock. And then God causes boils to break out over all the Egyptians, over their bodies. And then God sends hail to destroy all their crops. And then God sends locusts to destroy any of the crops that survived after the hail. And, and God causes darkness to come on the day for three, come on, Darkness to come over a period of three days over the land of Egypt. And every one of these plagues that, that God sends to help, to help Moses with this message, Pharaoh hardens his heart even more. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. These plagues are primarily directed towards the Egyptians. And it just enrages Pharaoh all the more. Hardening his heart, nope, no way I'm going to let you guys go. And that leads us to our text today. This is actually the 10th plague. And this is going to be the plague that finally breaks the back of Pharaoh, that convinces him to let the Israelite people leave the land of Egypt. Allows Moses to lead the people out of the land, to cross the Red Sea, into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. If you're familiar, if you've been in church very long, you know this is a story of Passover. This is an amazing story. And uh, I'm going to give you a summarized version of it this morning. And, and there's going to be three things I want to I help us to grasp on the big picture of what Passover is all about. Number one, Passover teaches us that we need a new beginning. You see, in the book of Exodus, uh, when it was written, the, 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 the calendar for people was all based on harvest. It was all based on farming. And so at the end of the harvest, in the fall, that is when kind of the year came to an end and the new year began because it was all centered around farming, right? Their whole life was around it. That's how they survived. 
It becomes natural for them to shape their life and the time around how the farm cycle works. Listen, that's similar to life for us. We all have dates that we observe, dates that are important to us, dates that maybe have mean nothing to somebody else, but dates that are valuable to us. In fact, I think about a couple of special dates we have going on right now. I know Jacob Heed, our associate pastor who happens to be on vacation today. I'm glad he's able to get away. Uh, Jacob, this summer, celebrates five years working here at Restoration Church. That's either a really good thing for him or maybe a really bad thing for him. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It depends on which day you ask him. But that's awesome for Jake. That's something we celebrate with him. We're excited for him. We're we're thankful for him. My wife and I, uh, 22 years ago, I gave my wife a little, little red or a little purple candy heart that said, be mine. That was the first day that we kind of like, oh, should we be a thing or not? And we still celebrate that day, February 10th, all these years later because it was special. It was important. It impacted our lives. Listen, this is what God's going to do with Passover. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron, his assistant, he says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And then in verse 14, it says, This day will be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a fast for the Lord throughout the generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. See, what God is doing is he's trying to redefine their calendar. Previously, they based their calendar on farming and harvest and how that worked out. But now, God is saying, no longer is farming the most significant thing in your life. Because God's people are about to experience the single most decisive event in their life through the hand of God. Their life is going to be completely redefined. See, think of this. Americans, we celebrate April 4th of 1776. For the nation of Israel, this was going to be the day that would change everything for them. When God would lead them out of slavery, that they could be a free people to worship God as Lord. This was both important on a practical and a spiritual level, God was going to change their life completely through this Passover event. Now, one of the things, if you don't, understand, if you don't know this, the Passover, it foreshadows the death of Jesus on the cross. Okay, these two events are, are so similar. And so that's what makes the Passover relevant for us to talk about today. See, for, for the nation of Israel, Passover was the thing that redefined their life. God led them out of slavery. God saved them. And for us, as Christians, our main event, the thing that shapes our life and our faith, is the Easter story. Is Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the cross. This is what frees us and allows us to have a, a relationship with God, allows us to be redeemed, allows us to worship him. This gospel story of what Jesus did on Easter, man, this changes us on a practical and a spiritual level, much like Passover did for the nation of Israel so many years ago. And here's the question for us this morning. Have you experienced this new beginning? Have you understood the depth of what Jesus has done for you? That you don't just need a little bit of uh, of help, we need a new beginning. The nation of Israel, they needed this. This was a new beginning for them. No longer are they a slave people. Now they're a free people. Have you experienced that for yourself? That no longer are you a slave to sin? No longer are you a slave to self? Well, have you placed your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross and become a new creation? 
This is where we experience a, a new beginning. We all need to experience that new beginning. That's the first thing that this Passover story is going to teach us. The second thing this Passover teaches us is that there are not good guys and bad guys. The story of Passover teaches us that we are all the same before God. Now, if you read through the book of Exodus, you'll see that it's really set up for Israel to be the good guys and for Pharaoh to be the bad guy, right? I mean, especially Pharaoh. Egypt, but Pharaoh especially is a bad guy. I mean, Pharaoh's the oppressor. He, he's, he's, he's forced these people into slavery. When he's confronted by Moses, he, he, he makes your life even worse. And so as we read Exodus, we expect God to come in and judge Egypt. We expect God to come in and say, let me teach you a little lesson, Mr. Pharaoh. Let me show you who's boss. We expect that to happen. But look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all, all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Let me ask you this. This plague that God's going to send, who's it going to affect? Who is going to be impacted by this plague? Is it just Israel? Excuse me. Is it just Egypt? Is it just Pharaoh? No, it says all, everybody, Egyptian and Israelite alike. In fact, this is why the Passover is such an important event for the nation of Israel, because God gives them instructions and says, listen, listen, this is going to happen. I'm going to kill all the firstborn unless you kill a lamb and you paint the blood of your doorposts of the house. And if you didn't, regardless of whether you're Egyptian or Israelite, regardless of whether you go to church, regardless of whether you're a good person, regardless of whether you are an ancestor of Abraham, if you don't do that, you're going to suffer this death of the firstborn, this, this, this plague. See, killing the firstborn wasn't just a judgment against Egypt because of their treatment of, of Israel. This plague actually affects the basic problem of humanity. And that is our sinful rebellion against God. That's what this plague is addressing. I mean, guess what? In terms of rebellion against God, again, there are no good guys and bad guys. We're all the same before God. We're all guilty before God. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of humanity, every one of us, we are sinful before God. But let's just be honest. How many of us view ourselves that way? No, like we view ourselves as, as good people. We're really good about seeing our good qualities. And we're really good about comparing ourselves with other people. Where we look and we're like, well, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm much better than that person. Do you know what they did last night? I am so much better than them. And we view ourselves in this light. We view ourselves as, oh, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not, I'm not a bad person. A bad person, that's those other people that do other stuff. I'm reading uh, a book I talked about a couple weeks ago uh, about a group of people who, when they came to know Jesus, uh, in their real lives, their lives became changed forever. And one of the stories is about a, a missionary who went to Ecuador to serve in, in foreign missions. And he writes about how he was amazed how the people lived in such incredible poverty. 
He says, I'm going around this village, and he says, there's disease, and disfigured bodies are widespread all over this village. He said, the bugs, the stench, the trash was just everywhere. He said, these people were feeding on rotten food, and they would take trash, and that would be their prized possessions. They would cherish things that we would consider trash and rubbish. He said, you know, the heartbreaking, about, the heartbreaking thing about this is that people did not realize poverty that they were living in. Why? Because everybody lived that way. That's how they all lived. They, they, they didn't have a picture of healthy human living. They didn't know what abundant life looked like. Listen, I think for some of us, we're similar to that village in Ecuador where we think of ourselves as being innocent and good people. But we're blind. We're blind to ourselves. We're blind to our, human na- our sinful nature. We're blind to our rebellion against God. We refuse to think about it, to acknowledge it, because, no, I'm, I'm a good person, because that's who wins in this world. God likes the good people and the bad people. No, we're all equal before God. We're all bad people before him. God is good and right to, to judge us. We're all guilty before him. Listen, this is true in Passover. It's true throughout the entire Bible. There are no good and bad people in Scripture. There's just bad people. And we are all deserving of judgment. You're like, this is a horrible message, Pastor Kevin. I thought you were going to preach good today. You had breakfast. Look, here we go. Because here's the third thing that Passover teaches us. That God, in his mercy, offers a substitute to suffer our judgment. This is what Passover is all about. Because beginning in chapter 12, we see that God gives these instructions for the Israelite people to observe Passover. He said, you're to take a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, no spots on the lamb, a perfect lamb. And at twilight, the entire nation is to kill those lambs. And then you're going to take some of the blood and you're going to paint the doorposts of your door and the the, the header above your door. You're going to paint uh, the outside of the door. And then you're going to eat the lamb and you're going to prepare to leave very quickly. You're going to put your shoes on, have your staff ready, and you're going to be ready to leave the land of Egypt. Now, I think about this and I'm like, the blood is kind of a weird, weird thing, right? Like, how many of you are going to do that today? Put blood on your doorpost? People would think you're crazy. But here's the thing with the blood, verse 13. God says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You know what that is? That's mercy. That's grace. That is God saying, hey, 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 this is what you deserve, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity. Because here, here's the thing in this story. The death count is the same for every house. The death count is the same whether you're Egyptian or Israelite. Listen, something's going to die in every single house. The only difference is who's going to die. Is it going to be the lamb or the firstborn? Who's going to suffer judgment? The lamb or the family? Because the lamb has the opportunity to become the sacrifice, to be the substitute to take the place of someone else, to pay the penalty of the judgment for those who rightly deserve the judgment. This is where we get this idea of Passover. Because if you, if you understood that, what God is doing here, 
And if you took the blood of the lamb and you painted your doorposts, God would pass over that house. It would not cause you to suffer that judgment, but would pass over you. And that's exactly what happens. God comes through and passes over the houses with the blood on the doorposts. The houses that didn't have that, he killed the firstborn of every household. And it finally breaks the back of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finally says, all right, go get out of here. Leave. Get out of my country. And Moses leads the Israelite people out of the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and starts chasing after him. And God leads Moses to the Red Sea and they cross the Red Sea. And then as soon as the Israelite or the, the Egyptians try and follow him, causes the sea. It's like, again, if you haven't seen it, Charlton Heston, you can watch it on Netflix. It's great. Or you can read it in your Bible. That'd be another way to do it. Sorry. Listen, Exodus is such a good book. In fact, one of, my, one of the commentators I read this week, he said, you know, basically, when we read the Bible, there, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, actually, there's five, because Exodus really is the gospel according to Moses. Because in Exodus, and especially here in chapter 12, we learn what Christianity is all about. We see everything we need to know about Christianity right here through the Passover. The Passover is pointing us to Jesus. In fact, the summary for this message, it teaches us that the Passover, it foreshadows God's plan to rescue humanity from sin. It is a foreshadow. It gives us a picture of what our rescue from sin looks like. That every one of us, we need a new beginning. We, need to, we don't need just to be a little bit better. We need a new beginning. We need to become a new creation. It teaches us that there are no good and bad people. We're all bad. We're all guilty before God. We deserve his judgment. And then here's the good news. In his mercy, he offers us a substitute, a spotless lamb to take our place when we rightly deserved it. In fact, that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, this story is meant for us to understand our salvation, of what Christianity is all about, of Jesus dying on the cross in our place. He's a lamb without blemish. Except the only thing for him is not talking about a spot on his body, it's talking about sin. He's the lamb who never sinned. He's the one who died for us in our place. So here's what we get out of this. Here's the application we get from this, from Passover. Two things. Passover is telling us that the gospel has got to become our identity. The gospel has got to become our identity. See, the Passover teaches us that that judgment is going to come, either to us as an individual or a substitute lamb. Now remember the story, though. When God was going around from house to house, what was he looking for? What was he looking for? Was he looking to see if they killed a lamb? Was he looking to say, did you kill a lamb? Was he looking to say, did you eat the lamb like I told you? No, what was God looking for? He was looking for the blood on the doorposts and on the headers of the doors. Verse 13 is clear. God was looking for the blood applied to the doorposts. See, to some extent, simply killing a lamb, it wasn't enough. 
Killing the lamb will not give the house salvation. Don't get me wrong, Christianity is all about a lamb dying in our place. But for salvation for the Israelites, it wasn't just about the lamb dying. It was about them applying the blood to the doorposts. That was the evidence. That was the proof that they had placed their faith, that they trusted God to rescue them, to redeem them, to give them a new beginning. It was the blood applied. Here's the thing. God's not walking around our, our city looking at your doorpost, looking to see if you've got blood on the front of your door. No, God's looking at our hearts. God's wondering today what is written on the doorpost of your heart. What is the evidence in your heart that you've trusted the blood of Jesus in your place? You see, a door, that's kind of the first thing you see when you go to somebody's house. That's the first thing you see. What is the first thing people see in your life? Let me ask you differently. What is your identity rooted in? See, our our identity is what we're known for. It's what motivates us. It's It's what we believe gives us value and worth. Our identity is very much the core of who we are. Listen, there are so many things that fight for our Our identity. So many things that we think, man, if I could just be known for this, if I could have, have wealth or education or, or power or a good job or influence or, or good morals, if I could just be known as being a moral person, if I could be known as being a good person, if I could be known as being a good parent or a good spouse or whatever it happens to be, listen, what is it that God finds on the painted on the door of your heart? Is there all of these other things? Or on your doorpost, you're writing good parent. On your doorpost, writing successful. Doorpost, writing wealthy. Doorpost, writing better than that person. Doorpost, writing this or that. Because I think when you apply the blood, I think it supersedes all those things. What is on the doorpost of your heart? Yes, Jesus died for you. You may know that. But have you taken the blood and applied it to your doorposts of your heart? Have you received him as your savior? Have you given your life to him? Have you allowed him dying on the cross to change your life, to influence how you live and how you operate? Now, I'll tell you what, as I was thinking about this passage this week, this is where I got really uncomfortable in my office this week. And I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I'm sitting there and I'm feeling very justified in myself. Oh, yeah, you know, my identity. You know, I'm pursuing my career. I, I, I want to figure out how to be a good parent, I'm trying to be a good husband, I want to be a good friend. Someday I want to retire. I've got all these things that I'm trying to pursue. Oh, yeah, and I'm a Christian too. I'm doing all these things, and praise God, because Jesus died for me. How many of us live our life and our faith like that? We're going this direction. My identity is tied up in this or that. Oh, and I'm a Christian. Listen, is that enough? Is that what God is asking of us? 
to go and pursue all these things that we think is gonna make life great, but then we throw a little bit of Jesus because we know we need a little bit of Jesus in our life. See, I'm, my challenge this week was, I saw ever look at the doorposts of my heart. It was a little hard to see. Would they see the gospel as being the priority? Would they see this as being the thing that matters most in my life? Beyond me as a pastor, beyond my career, beyond my parenting, beyond my, my, my marriage, beyond, beyond my retirement, and all those other things, is the gospel the most significant thing about me? That gets a little awkward in my own mind. It's where I think we've got to allow the gospel to be our identity, the core of who we are. Where it's not, hey, I'm pursuing these things, oh, and I need a little bit of Jesus. But no, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm pursuing the gospel. I'm pursuing Jesus, oh, and I need to be a good parent. Oh, I'm pursuing the gospel, oh, and I need to have a good marriage. I'm pursuing the gospel, oh, and someday I want to retire. And I'm, I'm gonna, but this is going to be my main thing. This has got to be, I mean, think about, has anything else ever died for you? Number one, my gospel has got to be our identity. And number two, this was new for me this week. I hadn't seen this in the story. But the gospel also sustains and strengthens us. It's the fuel that sustains us to live a life of faith. See, it's like I almost missed over this because I'm, I'm so focused on the Passover idea of the blood being on the doorpost that I missed that the Passover lamb, it didn't just rescue them, but it sustained them. You see, you see God gave the Israelites specific instructions. You're to kill the lamb, you paint the doorpost, but then I want you to cook the lamb. And I want you to eat the lamb. And so yes, the lamb is a sign of deliverance, but the lamb, the lamb was also a meal. It also provided nourishment for them to have the strength to walk out into the promised land, to live the life of faith that they are called to live. This is why when we read Scripture, Scripture refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, but also refers to him as the bread of life. Because in a real sense, through Jesus, yeah, God rescues us from our sin. Absolutely true. Praise God for that. But through Jesus, he also sustains us as he sends us out to live lives of faith. So let me ask you, like what are the difficulties, what are the difficulties you're facing? Difficulties in your marriage? With parenting? Some sin in your life? Some, some addiction? Some, some struggles? Anger? Struggling for your purpose? You know, how do you get through that? Many of us, it's just, oh, I'm going to try harder. Oh, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to read another book. I'm going I'm to try a new, a new principle. I've got five steps to, to be a better person. I think Passover teaches us just to lean into Jesus because it's a gospel that saves us and it's also the gospel that sustains us. And gives us that strength and fuel to live the life of faith that we're trying to live. 
This is why here at Restoration Church, we say that we are a gospel people. And we're going to come back to the gospel again and again and again. Because even if you place your faith in Jesus and you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for, for 40 years, listen, the gospel is still what sustains you. It gives you fuel to live this life. It equips you to live a life of faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul wrote, <laughs> this is a guy who was nearly beaten to death, a guy who was shipwrecked, who was hungry and homeless, who was tormented by a messenger of Satan. And you know what the Apostle Paul said? He said, I can do all things. I can survive all things. I can endure all things. And how? Through Christ who strengthens me. That God sustained him. God gave him the strength to, to endure all things, to be all things, to accomplish all those things. As we think about our life and all those things, listen, it's the gospel that saves us. It's Christ who died for us, but it's also Christ who fuels us and strengthens us to, to live it out. You know the great thing is? That the, the God of Paul, who strengthened him to do all those things, he's the same God of Restoration Church today. And that same strength, that same hope, that same presence, that same power is available to us today. That we can live out a life of faith, a life of, of joy, of peace, of purpose, of power. Not because we try harder. Not because we do a bunch of stuff. Not because we're good people. But because Christ died for us. And the strength to help us to live it out. And I love the gospel according to Moses. Now we can see through this Passover story that we don't just need to be a better person. We need a new beginning. We need to be a new creation. Listen, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'd implore you today. Today's the day for you to become a new creation, to experience a new beginning. Scripture says that the old is gone and the new has come. Today's the day for us to recognize it's not a matter of being a good person or a bad person. We're all guilty before God. But in his great mercy, he's chosen to send Jesus to pay the penalty of death for our sin, the judgment that we deserve. Jesus took on himself. And the question for us this morning, Jesus, as a lamb who died in our place, will we take his blood and apply it to the doorposts of our hearts? Will we allow what he's done for us to be the core of who we are, our identity? Because it changes us. It fuels us. It makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray.